Let's pray. Lord, this morning, before we lift up some specific things in regards to the next few minutes we're going to spend together, I want to pray for Betty Franklin, uh, who is on our city council. I want to pray for her. Um, first, I want to pray for her worship. If she knows you, that it is a vibrant and rich and living uh, relationship, that she is enjoying you while she is serving on the council. Lord, if she doesn't know you, I pray that she will come to know you. We, uh, we just want to lift up, um, I guess, a request for the eyes of her heart to be open to the greatness of the gospel and uh, of what you've done for us in Christ. And Lord, we pray as a result of that, that she will make decisions uh, along with the rest of the council and our other uh, civic leaders that will bring glory to you. I confess to you, for the, really for the first time in front of this people, that I've sort of seen that as separate from what we're doing sort of considered what's going on in our city and in our local government or state or national government as sort of being separate from you. And I confess right now in front of these people that you are Lord over this country, you are Lord over this state, you are Lord over Greenville, you're Lord over the council, you're Lord over the mayor, you're Lord over Betty Franklin, whether she knows it or not, that they are there by appointment. Lord, I pray that the kingdom will be furthered because of how you use them. And I pray that the church has a, has a voice into those movements. I confess in front of this people a history, really, in eight years of sort of sitting on my hands when it comes to things to do with our national government, our state government, our city government. And I ask your forgiveness in front of this people. Because you have the wisdom. You have the power. You, you have our Savior sitting at your right hand, risen and living. We have that unique benefit of a living Lord. Lord, I pray that whatever way we need to walk out in this, in dominion, if the gospel is the answer to our marital issues, to our uh, health issues, if the gospel is the answer to understanding our finances, if we really believe the gospel is the answer, then it's the gospel, then it's the answer for our businesses, and it's the answer for our community. It's the answer for our council, for our civic leaders. Lord, I confess that right now. I don't know what that looks like. But I confess that I've sat on my hands for eight years. Lord, we pray for a discernment and a wisdom in how to step out in Christ-exalting, aromatic, salty wisdom that by your grace and mercy that some point in the future that possibly if our community is in turmoil, that they look to the church for answers. What a crazy thought. That they look to the church for answers. That they look to us for messengers of peace. I don't know what that looks like, but I dream about it for the first time. I confess that you're able as we pray for a city council member right now, as we have been praying for our civic leaders for the last few months, for the first time this morning as a church, we pray for opportunity, whatever that may look like, an opportunity that will bring glory to you. Secondly, Lord, this morning, I want to pray for another church. I want to pray for Park Street Baptist Church, uh, Pastor Johnny Hales and his wife, uh, Ruth. Lord, I know right now that they're dealing with difficulty of their grandson uh, being 
seriously sick with a brain tumor. Lord, we pray that right now that their worship is as fervent and as aromatic and as bright as it's ever been, and that many sons will be brought to glory through what you're doing through this situation. We pray that whatever way possible that we can come alongside this church, that we can lift them up, that we can lift up Johnny and his wife, that the gospel will be furthered in this community, that you'll be enjoyed more through this. Lord, I pray that where we are in dominion informs how we pray, informs how we move, that it helps define for us what matters. I pray that you'll do that today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. As you're turning there, I'll tell you that this is a, a very plain Jane sermon. Um, as I'm preparing sermons, I realize that my pursuits now have changed over the last eight years. Eight years ago, I would have been pretty traumatized by not really having sort of a vehicle, an innovative way to present something that's true. And I think in eight years, he sort of settled me. It just That's my work. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. You just expose the truth. And sometimes she's especially plain. There's no makeup. Her hair's not done. She's not wearing fancy clothes. But hopefully you can see her deep and abiding beauty. This morning, that's where we're going, is to just a plain exposition of beautiful truth. In some ways, it's dominion part three. We're in Hebrews chapter two. I'm going to read beginning in verse five, and we're going to focus primarily this morning on verse 10. The reason I'm reading verse five all the way through 10 is because they sort of work together. It's sort of fitting under this umbrella of dominion. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It's been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. A couple weeks ago, we considered on New Year's Day the beauty of the reality that dominion was restored in the personal work of Christ. That this Psalm 8 is not just about generic man, although there is application. As an unbeliever teaches his dog to sit, he's exercising dominion. He's sort of walking in, in a real thin way, Psalm 8. Believers more so, as we go about the work and uh, journey of faith, we are exercising dominion. But Psalm 8, in the purest sense, is about Christ. And that's where the Hebrews author's taken them. To where they see that dominion was redeemed and restored in the person and work of Christ. That's where we went a couple weeks ago. And here's where we went last week. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Man, you hear that and you read that and you're like, yes, victory in Jesus. But then there's the next verse. At present, you know, given the context, you could almost insert a though. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We see what we considered last week as disparity. It surrounds us. But we do see him who, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. While we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, there's some things we do see 
we see the incarnation. We see him having taken on flesh and made a little lower than the angels. We see him also crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And we see him also with everything put in subjection to him with nothing outside of his control. We do see those things. And then in verse 10 where we are today. For it was fitting that he for whom and by all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now here's where plain Jane comes in. I really don't have an innovative way to present this. I'm going to rely on old-fashioned English. And we're just going to let our English skills, our <laughs> maybe borrowing my skills this morning, which are limited, to break this verse down. We're going to look at the subject, the verb, and the object, and just let the verse speak. First of all, the subject. I'm going to identify you for, or identify these things for you, and then we're going to let, expose them and let them speak. First, the subject is he for whom and by whom all things exist. I'm not going to identify who that is just yet. We're coming to that. But if you write in your Bibles, you may jot this down, an S over that phrase, so you know what's what in this verse. The subject is he for whom and by whom all things exist. The verb is sort of cloaked in there. It's hard to make out because there's a little phrase in the middle of it, the founder of their salvation. The verb is on either side of that, make perfect. That's the central verb to the passage. And it's modified by a couple different things. This verb of making perfect is modified by the why of the verb, by the prepositional phrase in front of it, in bringing many sons to glory. Why is he made perfect? To bring many sons to glory. And it's also modified by the how of through suffering. But that's the verb modified by the prepositional phrase, why, in bringing many sons to glory, and the how, through suffering. And then the direct object of the, the verse there is the founder of, thou, of their salvation, that little phrase right, right between the broken up verb, make perfect, the founder of their salvation. Now, we're going to look at this first, the subject. The subject is God the Father. The subject is not Jesus in this verse. The subject is he for whom and by whom all things exist. One of the beauties of this passage in regards to the subject is it deals with what's fitting for our God. I have a number of commentaries on Hebrews now. Preparing to go into Hebrews, I mean, I I bought a mess. Probably 15 commentaries on Hebrews. And across the the spectrum of commentaries there, they almost all deal with verse 10 by itself because it's such a freight train full of goods that is dealt with by itself. I mean, relative, the neighbors, but dealt with by itself. And the reason is because it's one of the unique places where it's spoken. This is fitting for our God. It's a great place to camp out because we bring all kind of baggage to what thinking our God ought to be. The world has all kind of baggage in thinking what our God ought to be. We may sit here right now with a notion of what we think God ought to be. God ought to be the grandfatherly sort, maybe, that kind of winks at our sin and has cocoa and a pipe and says, crawl up on in our lap. Kids, it's all good. Or maybe it's the forgetful God 
He doesn't forget the things that we've done good, but he forgets all those other things where we thumb our nose at him. We have all kinds of notions about God. Some people may have a notion about God as being this wrathful, angry, people-squashing God. All kinds of notions about our God. We can come to this text and find out what is fitting for our God. It's a good passage to sort of jettison baggage that you might have about what you think God ought to be. And to sort of build in with the Word and the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word what God actually is by identifying what's fitting for our God. Not the God of our making, not the God of our imagination, not the God of our desires, but our God, the biblical God, the one true God. I'm going to charge you with this. If you would like to present God to someone, if it's neighbor, friend, if you're in a ministry presenting him, if you're in a workplace presenting him, this is a key text for you. In some ways, it may, may be diagnostic, but it should be equipping to help you realize this. If you present God without present what's being said in this text where it's said is fitting for our God, you're leaving something out. You're leaving something really important and really massive about what's in keeping with the character of our God. If you're unwilling to speak about where this is about to take us, then hear this. You underrepresent and, in effect, misrepresent our God. Do I have your attention about how serious this passage is? I hope so. Man, it's important. Now, the verb, I don't present the Greek very often, but I know there's some folks in our, in our, our uh, body here that like to connect to these sort of things. Um, so I'll share this Greek word. Really, I'm going to spend more time sharing what it, what it means. The, the central verb of this passage that the subject, God the Father, does is the verb make perfect. Teleosai is the Greek word, in case any of you were curious. Let me show you some other uses. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. We're going to stay within the same book because when you stay within the same book, many times you get at the heart of the meaning best. If we were to jump to different authors, we might get a different take on that verb. But we're going to stay within the same book and just look at a couple of different passages to get a sense of what's being said here. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This verb is used about Christ or referring to Christ often. Here's another reference. Chapter 7, verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let me show you another verse. Turn to Exodus chapter 29. As you're turning there, let me acquaint you with something I've mentioned before, but for those of you who may be here for, for the first of a few times or who were sleeping on that Sunday, there is a Greek Old Testament. Okay, the Greek originally was written in Hebrew, but early on, very early on, it was translated into Greek for all those um, uh, Hellenistic Jews, which is who this book 
it was written to, the book of Hebrews. Those non-native Jews who were spread all over the Roman Empire in what's called the Diaspora. And in the Greek Septuagint, this same verb is used a number of times here in this chapter. It's used a number of places. But listen to how it's used here in chapter 29 of the book of Exodus. If you're paying attention, you can look at the heading there. In my Bible, the ESV, it says, Consecration of the Priests. Now, this is going to be the first instructions on how to ready a priest for worship. And here are a few uses of this very same verb. Chapter 29, verse 9. You shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. It's not in there yet. It's coming. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall, here it is, ordain Aaron and his sons. In the Greek, that would be, that's the very same word. It would be read like, thus you shall make perfect Aaron and his sons for the priesthood. It's translated ordain in our ESV there. Look at verse 29. Here's another reference, another use of it. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them. And here it is, made perfect or ordained in them. Another use in verse 35. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain or make perfect them. Make them perfect. And here's another use that I'm going to show you next to something. Well, let me tell you first before I show you this other verse. This word literally means to fill the hands. So you just envision Aaron and his sons coming before this notion of the priesthood empty-handed. Okay, they're standing there. God, we don't have the goods to be a mediator between God and man. Because the problem is we're man. <laughs> we're fallen just like these guys we're supposed to represent. That's a difficult notion. So we come empty-handed. But this notion of being made perfect is to fill their hands. It's an awesome picture that we're going to come back to often this morning. Their hands are made perfect, are filled. I found one reference to this verb that's translated blameless, which means complete. To fill their hands, not with partial goods, but with complete goods. To fill them, just, in, just envision them, stuff falling out. They're so full. Now, here's another use of this verb right next to another one. This is important. Verse 33. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination. There it is, at their event where they were made perfect. And consecration. That word there means to make holy, hagiazo. But an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. These two words, in that case, was hagiazine. To consecrate is sitting right next to, to fill the hands or to make perfect. And here's the beauty back in Hebrews. You can turn back there to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to work this morning, so just be ready to do some turning. Hebrews chapter 2. I didn't read verse 11 this morning, but the first part of verse 11. For he who sanctifies hagiatzain, and those who are hagiatzain all have one source. The Hebrews writer is thinking about this hands being full to make perfect right next to hands being consecrated as the Exodus writer did. And the picture here is of a priest being made ready for worship. 
to make holy and to make ready. The Hebrews writer here is saying that Christ was made perfect. And there in verse 11, he's implying that he's also made holy. Now, I need to deal with this before we continue. While Christ was already perfect and holy and without blemish, he was made perfect for the priesthood and the perfect sacrifice through suffering. His hands were filled. While he was already holy and perfect and unblemished, he was completed and ready for the perfect offering by having his hands filled. And you know what his hands are filled with? Not an innocent lamb, but himself. It's like he picks himself up. If if we could imagine some way to illustrate this, obviously I can't do that. But to pick himself up and to offer himself, here I am. His hands are filled and made perfect and consecrated, and that through suffering. And remember, that's fitting for our God. Now, how has he made perfect? Through suffering. You can also look back at verse 9 of chapter 2 and see that it's referenced there. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. It's like the suffering of death earns the place at the Father's right hand, earns the many diadems. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And he is made perfect or ready to be a priest through suffering. Now, if your mind goes where my mind goes, automatically you think of the cross. And that's very appropriate because that was an extreme hour, and it's more than an hour. We're speaking of, in a general sense, how Christ spoke of it. The hour of suffering, it was a poignant hour. But we often use suffering and persecution as interchangeable. And that was an intense hour of persecution. But persecution is a subset of suffering. You need to know that. I used to feel like I needed to shower when I was preaching on suffering. (laughs) Because we live in 2012 in Greenville. I don't know that anybody's really experiencing suffering. But that's because I was thinking about it in terms of persecution. Persecution is a subset of this massive thing called suffering. And Jesus certainly suffered in that hour of the cross, but that's not all. Here's some other samples of suffering. I'm going to have you turn to a few of these, and some of them I'm just going to have you listen. John chapter 6, you can turn there. John chapter 6. Jesus has just fed the multitude. You can look at your heading at the beginning of chapter 6. Don't be afraid to use headings. They make sense. Jesus feeds the 5,000. And in verse 14, after he feeds the 5,000, listen to what happens. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the definite article and a capital P. That's why it's a capital P there. The prophet who has come into the world. They're thinking, this is the man we've been looking for. This is the Messiah, the, ones who's going, the one who's going to save us. And look what happens in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
The other accounts show him sending the crowds away and sending the disciples across the Sea of Galilee to pray by himself. Now, we're not given a lot of information here, but we can look somewhere else to get some sense of what's going on here. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Here's what I believe, based on context, is going on there in John chapter 6. The reason that he withdraws by himself seems to be contextually with other things that are going on because it's got to be a temptation. He's meant to rule. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And they're wanting to make him king. And he's having to wait. And there had to be some suffering in that. There had to be some suffering in the notion of waiting to do the thing that he was meant all along to do. Look at the temptation of Matthew chapter 4. We went here a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago. And man, what an awesome, awesome passage. Look at the three things that he's tempted with. Here's the first occasion. Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Led by the Spirit to be tempted. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, remember he was hungry. Remember that? He was hungry, unlike Adam and Eve, whose bellies were full of whatever fruit was hanging from whatever tree they happened to bump into. He's hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he says, No. It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. First temptation had to do with food while he's hungry. Second temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written... He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will swoop you up, bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You can just imagine the scenario, the picture that must have entered his mind, that must have been a temptation because while he's fully God, he's still fully human. The notion of climbing up on the pinnacle and falling off and being swept up. The picture of safety. He's tempting him with safety. Anybody don't want safety? Anybody not up for food or safety? Two very real human things that we all want and need. But look at the third temptation. And remember, it is a temptation. Again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And I can't imagine that the angels didn't come to him and say, Hang on, Jesus, wait. Your time isn't come, and you're going to get this reign and this rule from the Father's hand. It's the wrong hand that's offering it, and it's the wrong time, and it had to be suffering to wait to do the very thing he was meant to do. Suffering and waiting. There's another picture of the suffering I'll share with you, and I can turn there quickly since I'm there. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he 
suffered. Suffering and obedience go together. There's suffering in waiting, but there's suffering in obeying. Anybody that says there isn't hasn't really done something that they really didn't want to do as an act of obedience. And that's what obedience is, mind you. Obeying when things are easy is selective obedience, and that's not obedience at all. Obedience is to step out and obey when it's really hard. That's suffering. And Jesus obeyed to the point of suffering. He waited and suffered. He obeyed and suffered. Here's another example of something I was thinking about. What it must have been like to walk with difficult people. I experienced sort of um, a... um, This this might hurt your feelings. I hope it doesn't. I I experienced a suffering in walking with people. I'm just even in the family level and with others. Now, don't think that it's just all y'all. I mean, I I just disappoint myself as well. But there's a suffering when you purpose yourself to walk with people because people are made of the same same stuff I'm made of. And you're going to disappoint as I disappoint. And I thought about the suffering of Jesus in walking with difficult people. Listen to this account. And when they, had came, or when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. That's not good. And I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't heal him. And Jesus, here a little glimpse of suffering, says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me, and Jesus heals him. It must have been a daily suffering in walking with ordinary, inconsistent, and difficult people. And then there's the suffering that sort of connects to where I was praying at the beginning of our time together. There's the suffering of doing ministry in the public square. Jesus' ministry, if you notice, you read the Gospels, you realize it was a very public thing. There were occasions where he might withdraw to a hillside for prayer or occasions where he might pull off and teach the disciples something especially and specifically. But for the most part, it was the public square. Everything about his ministry was very public, including his cross. Something that's connected for me in studying this the last couple of weeks and some other things that have sort of come into focus has made me, helped me realize that there's a suffering in being obedient in the public square for the church. If you sit around with your hands on, sitting on your hands, we can all kind of sit back here behind this safe pulpit and in our safe Sunday morning chairs and think about stuff that goes on in our world or our community or our context. Say, man, we sure should pray about that. And should we? Absolutely. But should prayer lead us to maybe open our pie holes? Huh? It did Jesus. I'm glad Jesus didn't show up and sit uh, sit on his hands and say, I sure should pray for these people. Did he? Yeah. But he spoke. As men of sincerity, we speak in Christ. And that's going to mean speaking in the public square. Our faith is not a private faith. 
Faith, if true by definition, is not private. And that will mean individually you step out as a salty, bright, aromatic individual or family in your context. But the church should have a voice publicly too. For the church to sit silent is to not do collectively and corporately what we're begging you to do individually and as families. And I'm convicted. <laughs> Sitting on our hands while stuff just happens around us. There's a suffering in that as Jesus suffered in the public square. And he was crowned with glory and honor because of it. And he is made perfect. His hands are filled through it. It's how he was made perfect. It's how his hands were filled. It's how he's consecrated as a priest. This is fitting for our God. This is appropriate for our God. If we leave this out about God, we've left out a key ingredient. I don't even want to call it an ingredient. A key character trait of our God. It was fitting for our God. The other modifier of that verb, to make perfect, was the why in bringing many sons to glory. We're going to spend some time there the next couple of weeks. I'm not going to spend much time there this morning. It's why he was made perfect. We'll go there the next couple of weeks. But next I want to deal with the object. The object of this passage, you know what the subject is. That's God the Father. The verb is to make perfect. The object is archegon. Archegon is the Greek, and it can mean leader or originator. This word archegon is the complement to what's used in verse 17, archerus, which means priest. I'm going to give you a word for this archegon in a moment. But know that it's blank and priest that are being taught here by the Hebrews preacher. This word can mean leader or originator. Just consider leader for a moment. Turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. As you're turning there, let me tell you a little about, about what it would look like if Jesus was only leader. John chapter 14 would read very differently. Beginning in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, um, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, you'll be able to get there. You'll be able to follow my lead. That's what that would imply if he's only leader. The word is used just above in Hebrews 2 where it says, in bring many sons to glory. That word bring means leading. Thankfully, it's translated bringing because it's more than just leading. He didn't just lead the way to where we need to go. That would present him as model. But he's more than that. He is means and mode. He's not just a leader. He is also originator. He is author. He is, as it's translated here, founder. I found another use of the word that, that translated it champion. I like that, boy, champion. He's champion of our salvation. And another reference that used it as captain of our salvation. That takes that whole captain of my soul thing and just kind of, that we all heard at our graduation, captain, my captain, you know, is that captain of my soul? That's not what it is. Captain, my captain. I, you know, I'm charting my own course. Oh, really? 
No, he's the captain of our salvation. He's the author and the founder and the champion. And it's so much more than just being a leader. While a leader might lead the way to a destination, this sense takes in a bigger meaning of not only just leading the way, but making a way and carrying our behinds there. He's not just leader blazing the way. He's picking us up and carrying us. Man, that's robust. This sense would greatly amplify this passage. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? That sounds like leader. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I will come again and take you to myself. I will carry you behind there. Yes, champion. Yes, you will. Because that's what you are more than just a leader. You take in verse 6 also. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's more than one who just goes ahead of them. He actually makes and becomes the way for them. I go via the cross to make and earn a way for you, and I will take you there as your champion. I found another use of the word that I like even better. It starts with a P, the kind of counterpart, it's counterpart to the priest, prince. That's good right there. The prince of our salvation. I love that, not just because it has a P, like priest. I love it because it's good, because a prince is not only going to lead his people into battle, he's going to champion the victory. And that's what Christ has done for us. And that's what's being said right here. Now, what in the world does this mean for us? If you're like me, you can study something like that and just enjoy it. And realize that's good. That's called worship when you do that. If you hear these things about our prince, our champion, our captain, and you hear this thing about what he's done here, you're like, man, that makes my heart sing. That's good. But there needs to be some applications. So I want to take you to a couple of places to apply these rich truths. First of all, this is sort of the bad news of dominion, if we could even call it that. It means we'll suffer. Christ's suffering means we'll suffer too. The disparity that we considered last week is not an exception to dominion. It's not saying that dominion is somehow broken. It is part of the Christian journey. The Hebrews church that would have received this letter would have been well acquainted with the disparity. Remember? As he says, we do not yet see all things in subjection to him. They would have thought to themselves, well, no, duh. We sure don't see all things in subjection to him. What I see is I see Granny providing the light as a human torch in Nero's garden. That's what I see. They would have been well acquainted with the disparity here, and he's making a point with them to take them to the reality of suffering. When his dominion and his position as ruler, seated in incession, doesn't seem to fit with what we are experiencing, loss, death, pain, struggle, injustice, inequity, 
see here now that disparity is the soil for suffering and what grows is glory. This, this disparity is the soil of suffering and what grows is glory. It's where his glory shines. It's fitting for our God. The Hebrews people needed to hear this. Here's the problem of the Hebrews people. Listen, listen to this passage. Here's what they're doing. Hebrews chapter 10. Don't turn there. Just listen, please. I don't even want a page turn. I want you to listen. Recall the former days, Hebrews. After you were enlightened, you endured, past tense, a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed, past tense, to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, or you had, past tense, compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully, past tense, accepted the plundering of your property since you, past tense, knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. It goes on to say, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The problems in the Hebrews church is that they had a beginnings of faith, and what was characteristic of that beginnings of faith was full-on suffering, where they faced it in faith, but now they were hunkering down behind locked doors. Uh, I don't want to suffer. Maybe someone had painted the picture for them that Christianity would mean everything was going to go great for you. I found an old hymn I was going to save for the end, but this is a good spot for it now. It's written by a woman named Annie Johnson Flint. I don't know what year it was written. This woman was crippled and twisted to the point of being an invalid most of her life with arthritis. Listen to this hymn. God hath not promised skies always blue, flowers strewn pathways all our lives through. God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God hath not promised we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He hath not told us we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. God hath not promised smooth roads and wide, swift, easy travel, needing no guide, never a mountain, rocky and steep, never a river, turbid and deep. God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. God promised no one flowery beds of ease. If you hear somebody sharing gospel story and they tell you things are going to be great for you if you follow Jesus, don't listen to it. They're lying to you. God's special and perfect will for your life may be to be eaten by lions for his glory. It might not be that. Hopefully it's not, but what if it is? He's still good. Man, suffering is part of the story. Listen to this sampling of passages. I'm going to turn very quickly so you can just listen unless you're really like sword drill guru. 
Matthew chapter 10. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. Is it enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master? If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? What are we thinking? That we can follow one who's crucified and not experience suffering? (laughs) It's ridiculous. We act as if, why is this happening to me? I must have done something wrong. Not realizing that's all part of it. This language here in Hebrews that's used of Christ's perfection is also used of us. Listen to these two passages in chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That language making perfect through suffering, that's applying to you too. It's not only used of him. It's used of us as well. Chapter 12, verse 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. I hope that's us. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous, made perfect. The language of suffering that was used for him is used for us. Man, it doesn't mean we've done anything wrong. Paul says it means more than that. It means something really good. Paul says, listen to what Paul says about it. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. We're not talking about suffering where you suffer because you've done something really stupid. I blew all my money and I'm suffering because I can't buy food. Well, yeah. Talking about suffering for righteousness' sake. Man, he's saying right here, you want to have a sense of whether you're in the faith or not. Do you ever suffer for righteousness' sake? Is there anything in your life that involves suffering for the sake of what is true and what's righteous and what's good and what has to do with the gospel? Anything? He's saying this is assurance of faith right here. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. He says... You're his. Are you suffering for righteousness' sake? You're his. Like the angels are coming around saying, wait, hang in there. Like they're ministering to Jesus. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The soil of suffering, the soil of disparity is where glory blooms. Man, it's where and how we're tested. James says this. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. Interesting word. Same word in the adjectival form. That you'll be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James says, your hands are filled through it. Your hands are made perfect through suffering and filled up. Man, and we sit around and scratch our heads saying, why in the world, how in the world is this happening to me? A couple weeks ago, after our sermon on dominion, turn to Ecclesiastes 9 as you're turning there. I'm going to share something with you. A few weeks ago, when we were considering 
this dominion story, this dominion redeemed. I was spending time with my family trying to walk in what we heard. And I, I gave my kids an assignment. The question from the kids is, well, how do we walk in dominion? How do we walk enjoying him? How do we worship in this? So I gave my kids an assignment. I wanted them to make 25 observations from the first three chapters of, of Genesis. Just 25 observations. I mean, they could be as simple as God said, let there be light. 25 observations really isn't hard to do. If you're thinking, wow, that, that's not a wow. You can make 25 in the first chapter. Easy. And I was having a conversation with one of my kids who was really trying to work this thing out. And I realized that that, I would, if I identify gender, if I identify who it is, needed to spend some more time there. So I had to make another 75 observations just in chapter one. And as she, I have to ask forgiveness if I'm in trouble for this, as she observed 60-something more things, I was supposed to help her with the last of them, but as she observed 60-something things in there, she observed that God said, let there be light. And I said, wait, we missed something. She missed something, and let me show you what it is. Now, this, this could happen to anybody. In fact, I probably would have missed it. It's an honest thing to miss that before God said, let there be light, the earth was without form and void, and darkness is over the face of the deep. The gospel, that's a, to me, I think that's the earliest picture of the gospel right there in the way God works. What's fitting for our God is that he speaks light into darkness. And those sufferings that all of us go through is where light shines. It's where glory shines. He speaks into darkness, says, let there be light. Paul connected to this thought with the Corinthians. Here's just a reference there, or just you want to jot it down. Stuff we'll probably look at in small group at some point. He says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants. For Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown into our dark hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what's fitting for our God is to speak light into darkness, to put light on display in dark situations. The very things in your life that you think are obstacles to your worship are in fact Hear this, man. I'm going to say this. I'll just say it over and over again. Opportunities. Something really crummy is going on in your life. Man, I'm going to weep with those who weep. But deep down inside, I'm going, it's an opportunity. Somebody's accused you of something that you are not guilty of. It's an opportunity. You're sick and it doesn't look good. Man, I'm praying with you. We're praying for healing. But I'm also praying it's an opportunity. What a great opportunity for the glory of God to be on display. Divorce. Can God use divorce and shine somehow through that? God can. Insert the problem. Divorce, false accusation, slander, inequity, injustice, sickness, pain, even death. All the disparities we talked about last week are opportunities for his glory. Think about his sufferings being our sufferings. Waiting. The suffering of waiting. Lord Jesus, I can't wait for you to come back and redeem this broken, failing body. Lord Jesus, I am waiting for you to redeem this relationship. Lord Jesus, I am waiting 
on you. I'm casting this care on you, and I am trusting you, and there's a peace that passes understanding that's coming over me, knowing that this is now in your hands. As I suffer in waiting. As I suffer in obedience, which they're suffering in proper obedience. If you only follow when it's easy, that's not obedience. They're suffering in walking with difficult people. If you commit yourselves to be a meaningful part of another person's life, you will be disappointed. Anybody married? Man. They're suffering and walking in it faithfully. And they're suffering in walking in the public square in worship. There will be suffering. We don't have to be confused. Why is this happening to me? It's fitting for our God. It's an opportunity for glory. And the reality is we are made perfect. Our hands are filled as little priests, a holy priesthood, a holy nation. Our hands are filled as priests through those sufferings. It's fitting for our God. Secondly, it means we have hope. Listen to this wonderful passage. I love the preacher of Ecclesiastes because he shoots straight. This guy does not have a fake smile. I'm not, man, I know I've done this before, I'm sure at times, where deep down inside, man, I'm troubled or I'm hurting, and I got to kind of paint on a a fake smile, and God's good all the time. When deep down inside, I'm saying, man, I'm mad, I'm frustrated, or "I'm, I'm in the bottom right now. This guy doesn't do that. He's just so authentic. Listen to what he says in chapter 9. Actually, I'm going to start in chapter 8, verse 14. Just listen. There's a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. Some people come to Christianity because they think, if I come to the faith, man, things are really going to go my way. My life's going to get tidied up. And the reality is some of those things will happen. I promise you. If you surrender all that you are to God, things will get better. But stuff, crummy stuff, stuff that you would think would happen to the wicked is still going to happen to you. That the righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. He's calling it, he's calling it as it is. He said, you know, I don't get that. Verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that's done on earth, how neither day nor, nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that's done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he won't find it. Even though a wise man claims to know what God is up to, he can't find out. The message of Ecclesiastes is that God is God and we are not. Listen to what he says next. All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. He's not talking about whether I love God or hate God today. He's talking about whether he wonders from one day to the next, does God love him or hate him? Man, this is happening to me. God, 
<gasps> Do you hate me? What in the world is going on here? He doesn't know from one day to the next, does God love him or hate him? Because it's the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. I thought when I started following Jesus, everything was going to go great and easy, flowery beds of ease. To the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices, man, I go to church, I give my tithes, and to him who does not sacrifice. Oh, man, I thought this thing was really going to work out for me. That if I followed Christ, my marriage would survive that. My wife was going to come back to me. Like, bro, don't follow Jesus for that. Follow Jesus because he's worth following. I hope he does that. But what if he doesn't? Are you done with Jesus? Let's treat him like the heavenly bellboy, like Santa in sandals. Hook me up. I'm going to church. Ecclesiastes Preacher, man, he's just calling it as it is. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he, he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that's done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after they go to the dead. But he who is joined with the living has Hope. He who is joined with the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Dogs in this day weren't pets. Like, come here, Merle, let me pet you, boy. Dogs were scavengers. They were dirty. And he's saying a living dog has hope that a dead lion doesn't have. So better be a living dog going through what a scavenger has to go through, but have hope. The stuff happens to everybody, but we have hope. For the living know that they will not die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that's done under the sun. Man, I, I wish I had some sort of good news for you that things were just going to go your way. <laughs> that following Jesus wouldn't mean any more suffering. But on the contrary, I think it's the opposite. Life is hard and it's unpredictable. And following Christ will not somehow make it linear and compartmental and tidy where you don't get a bad report where you don't get one of those dreaded phone calls, where you don't get a pink slip. It's going to happen. Faith is not a recipe for trouble-free life. God is God, and we are not, and it's fitting that we're not in control, but that He is, and by His ways and it's His time, He does with us what He will for His own glory. I still think about what God showed us in our Exodus journey as a church. 400 years, approximately, Israel was in Egypt. 400 years. I thought about what it must have been like to be in year 50. They're riding the coattails of Joseph. Their forefather, Joseph, man, they're living at large in, in Egypt, living in Goshen. Hey, man, y'all related to Joseph. You got it going on. Yeah, that's right. But then some of those Israelites 
lived in year 350. Some of those Israelites had stripes across their back. Some of them died in year 395, never having received the promises. Sound like Hebrews 11? Some of them went through all of that, but God was working out a plan for His glory in His time with His people, and He wasn't snoozing in year 350 or 395, just like He wasn't snoozing in year 50. He thought this fitting to work out His own plan. <laughs> Makes sense? He thought it fitting to work out His own plan and not theirs. And not yours. To work out his own plan for glory. He is our hope. Last place I'll have you turn is Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to see that he is our hope. And I want you to see why. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. On your best day, your best month or year of worship. I mean, just I'm trying to think of things that we might lean on and rest on. Those things aren't able to make us perfect. There's only one thing that we can hope in, whether things are good or bad, and that's down in verse 14. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, and you know what that offering was, that's where Christ picked himself up and offered himself perfect, holy, and complete. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. He is our hope, period. He's it. Whether things are really bad or really good, He is our hope. He paved the way. He made the way for us. And our prince carries us where we can't go. Man. Last thing for you to consider this morning is that it means others will be brought to glory through our hope in our suffering. Scott and I were talking about this this week and he made the greatest observation. I'll share it with you in a second. I want you to know that our suffering isn't just about us. Here's what Scott's observation was. Sometimes we think, God's trying to show me something in this. And you know, I think I've got it. <laughs> so God, you can stop. I got what you wanted me to get. And Scott said, no, maybe it's not so much about what we're supposed to learn in that or what we're supposed to see in that, but what someone else is supposed to see in it through us. It's easy to follow Jesus when things are going your way. Like, man, I love Jesus. I got a great job, got a good car, my health's good, my family's all intact, everything's going great. Well, yeah, lost world says, yeah, man, Jesus looks pretty good to me. Is that what I get if I sign up? But man, you know when the light really shines? 
is when you've lost your job, when you're sick, when your marriage seems to be falling apart or has fallen apart, when it seems all is lost and you're thinking, once I get through this, I'm really going to worship. Realize that your best worship, you are loudest. The gospel that you enjoy is most impacting in that mess. As you enjoy him in that mess. How many times as we have a church, have we as a church engaged this? I, man, I've told Christy, I feel like I've preached this sermon a hundred times. And you know as well as I do, we just move it verse by verse. It's not a soapbox that I've somehow picked, you know. I'm going to be the suffering church. It's a theme. It's a theme in the scriptures. God says, I'm going to be glorified through your suffering. And I'll bring many sons to glory through your hope in your suffering. Man. His suffering means we'll suffer. Get it. His suffering means we'll suffer. And his work means we have hope. And lastly, our hope in suffering means his glory. Dominion hasn't failed. He's working out his plan for glory. Let me pray. God, I hope in some way this is encouraging. I hope in some way it's equipping. I hope in some way that it leaves us as a people, not if we face trial or difficulty, but when we face trial or difficulty, that we can be a clarion voice of worship in that. And that the aroma of hope and worship and Christ crucified and risen and your grace and your mercy reaching low for the likes of us is loudly heard. Lord, I pray that we can see these occasions as opportunities for those around us that don't know Jesus to where they can see that we have a hope that's bigger than that crisis, bigger than that problem. I pray that you can take us to a different place. A place where we trust you. A place where we beg to for your glory in and through it. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Messages like this do not make light of our suffering. It makes sense of our suffering. It puts it in proper perspective. And I'm thankful for messages like this because perspective is a hard thing to hold in hard times. Um, understanding is, is not always um, easy to come by. In our Wednesday study in Exodus 20, uh, this last week we engaged the nation of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai and some of the children's Bibles that I've read to, read through with my kids have all the people smiling and happy as they're receiving the law. And, you know, he's holding the, oh, I got the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and in fact, they were terrified. God was being purposefully um, fear-inducing at the base of Mount Sinai. And, 
After they received the commandments, it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, in the presence of God, hearing what God's will is, free from the bondage of slavery that was in Egypt, that was hard, it says, When they, the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And then this is the part that sticks out and connects to the message. It says, The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So where was God? He's in the thick darkness. I said on Wednesday, I think Moses was probably wearing like a duster or something as he kind of moseyed into the darkness with this boldness that he didn't have before because he used to be timid and, and sort of a pansy. But now in his relationship with God, he's grown in his strength. But he drew near to God in the darkness, and that's hard to understand. We, we think we're children of light. He's a God of light. How does that make sense? But here, um, God can not only be seen even in the darkness, but maybe especially in the darkness, and there's a connection to a verse that Ben mentioned already in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So don't, don't draw away from God, draw near to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a very difficult verse because to me it says that um, understanding is not what's most important. I take very seriously the call to be fully convinced as to what I believe, to be transformed by the renewal of my mind and not be conformed to the world. But there are times where understanding is not what's most important. What's above it is a peace that can only come from God. That's very difficult. But if we only chase understanding, uh, we'll find ourselves confused. There are, how can I have understanding when darkness is all around? How can I have understanding in this sickness? How can I have understanding when we have prayed and prayed and prayed and still it doesn't seem that God has given us that which we want? And what I see in these verses is that when we let our request be made known to God, he gives a peace, a peace even in thick darkness, which surpasses all understanding, which guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So understanding is not what's most important. I was thinking about how it plays out. I'm not trying to preach another sermon. I just invoked a lot of thoughts. I'll be quick. But when you're sharing truth in darkness, if there's a circumstance where people look at you and you are being bright and salty and shiny and aromatic when things are horrible, they don't look at you and say, oh, that makes perfect sense. Oh, I have understanding now. They look at you and say, that doesn't make any sense. Where's the understanding there? I don't understand why you are calm when everything's crazy. I don't understand why you are loving when you are being treated with injustice. I don't understand why you are encouraging someone else when all you are receiving is discouragement from the hand of another. 
I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense. And I think that God is, in a sense, giving others, through your suffering, peace that exceeds understanding. And he draws them to Christ in those moments. And you share the gospel in those moments. So it's not those moments where it's hard and people are like, oh, that makes perfect sense. A lot of times they look at it and say, that doesn't make any sense. And that's what draws them to truth. That's what draws them to Christ. In, um, as the Lord met with um, his disciples before his death, they couldn't understand everything that was coming, but he wanted them to have peace and he wanted them to have remembrance. They could have looked at the supper and said, I don't want to remember that because that was right before my Jesus died. But he gives them peace in this. And he says, for, um, Paul says in recounting, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As I know there are many sitting here, specifically in this room, who are going through trials, hard times, suffering, are dealing with hard questions, are battling against horrible confusion, are on the receiving end of injustice and evil, this is a time for us to enjoy our Savior. This is a time for us to draw near to the one in, in whom there is help. So in specific remembrance of our wounded healer and in specific remembrance of our suffering servant, take and eat. In the same way also he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. No matter, no matter if it's a valley of sorrow or a river of joy, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful that you um, give us uh, peace and understanding. I'm thankful that um, we can open the word and see um, really only in Christ how um, anything makes any sense. Um, our, our most joyful moments don't make any sense outside of Christ. And our most sorrowful moments don't make any sense outside of Christ. And so today we thank you for Christ. We celebrate um, him conquering death, him giving us life in him. I'm thankful that we have one who sustains us. I'm thankful that steadfastness and perseverance and endurance are not impossibilities for those who are in Christ. You are great and greatly to be praised. I pray that we would uh, continue in worship uh, wholeheartedly as that is what is fitting um, for our Lord. We love you and praise you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Second, I've got uh, one verse to share with you and then a couple of announcements. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I, one of my hopes this morning is that you're you, maybe for the first time are seeing your trial or your difficulty as opportunity. And I know you have them. I have them. You need to know that I have them too. Because sometimes if it's coming from somebody that, think you don't, that you think he doesn't have any problems, then you're like, well, okay, whatever. You don't know what I have going on. Jesus was able to identify with our weaknesses and our struggles. I'm able to identify with yours. You're able to identify with each other's. 
see those as opportunities for glory. Let me pray. God, you are so good. We are so thankful that we have hope, purpose, meaning in trial, that we realize we're not just a chance pinball, but that we are actually on a trajectory of glory, a, a plan that's been designed and ordained from the outset, that you are, in fact, working all things together for good for those who are called according to your purpose. We marvel at that. We ask your forgiveness for those times where we just are clueless, frustrated, uh, discouraged, and that we can be encouraged in gripping reality this morning, ultimate reality. Lord, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.